0: This is the Sound on Sound
1: podcast. Hello again, and welcome to the SOS podcast from Sound on Sound magazine. I'm Chris Mayswright, and I'd like to introduce you to Paul White, editor-in-chief. Hello. And Hugh Robjohns, technical editor. Hello.
2: Coming up, we'll be answering some of your burning studio questions, so perhaps a diatribe on fire extinguishers will be in order. We'll be talking to Paul Farrer about his new column and reporting from this year's Music Live show.
1: But first, it's back to Chris for some news. TC Electronic have launched PowerCore 6000, a version of their flagship System 6000 reverb processor for use with computer-based digital audio workstations. It's based on the PowerCore DSP hosting hardware and includes plugins that use the same algorithms that are found within the System 6000. In Europe, it costs €3,000, which was £2,450 or $3,850 at the time of this recording. Visit tcelectronic.com for more. UK-based plugin developers Synalxis have unveiled a new suite of mastering processors. Included are four plugins that offer multiband limiting, volume maximisation, spatial processing and dithering, with comprehensive but easy-to-use graphical interfaces. For more information, visit the news pages of our website at soundonsound.com forward slash news, where there's an in-depth write-up of the new plugins. Otherwise, head to synalxis.com. At the beginning of November, we dropped into the UK's Music Live show, which is a public event, to see how the UK market was reacting to the new gear on the street. First off, we spoke to Chaz Levin from Source Distribution, who've had great success with the release of Universal Audio's UAD2 system.
3: There are three levels of card there's a solo, duo, and a quad card with one, two, and four processors. And then uh, in all nine different permutations, because you can also get them with vouchers to buy the online plugins. Uh, Very highly regarded um, digital emulations of a lot of classic studio kit huge amount of them going out the door and a lot of very satisfied customers. So how much more powerful are these compared to the original UAD? The Solo card, which has the one processor on it, is two and a half times on average as powerful as the UAD one. It can vary a bit. Some plugins you can run only twice as many, but many of the plugins you can run four or five times as many. So they've taken an average and said two and a half times. So that means the Duo card with two processors is five times as powerful, and the Quad card is ten times as powerful. You've got four processors on there so you can run for instance 128 channels of the neve 88 desk they were very hot to get hold of for a while because they'd manufactured more of the solo than the quad and it turned out everybody wanted the quad but now completely caught up shipping now available through any retailer and we've got plenty in stock and where can people go to find out more information well they can go to universal audio's website www.uaudio.com then go to our website, www.sourcedistribution.co.uk, and I'm available for tech support, uh, chas.levin at sourcedistribution.co.uk, or on the phone.
1: Also on the source booth was the new Rode M2 microphone. Chris Hawkins explains more. This is a brand new microphone from Rode which is a true condenser featuring a 40 to 20,000 Hz frequency response with a maximum SPL of 128 dB so you can really build it out through it. Very versatile basically aimed at uh, live vocals it's a super cardioid response and retails at 109 it's got a switch on it as well hasn't it it has it has got an on off switch on it it does stop the clicks and pops when you're switching mics changing cables and things like that and is it shipping now it's shipping right now comes with leather wrap case plus uh mic clip and obviously the road 10-year warranty since we visited the music live show road have unveiled the m1 another stage vocal mic Unlike the M2, the M1 is switchless and is dynamic. For more information on this and all of Rode's microphones, check out Rode.com. UK distributor Sound Technology were also exhibiting at Music Live, and I visited Rob Wallace on the Nord stand to fill me in on the new Stage EX. The latest addition to the Nord range.
4: It's all the sort of like classic keyboards you would need in one keyboard. You know, you've got your pianos, so you can do all your normal pianos, your electric pianos like your Rhodes and your Whirlies. It's got organ in it with the drawbars and everything, so you can get all those sort of Farfisa sort of organ sounds. Uh, And it's got a synth engine in it as well, and they're all conveniently marked and clear on the control panel, so at any one press of a button, you know exactly where you are and what you're playing. Uh, Plus you can morph between them and change them as well. Uh, it's got USB on it as well, so you can actually update sounds into it as well. And it comes in various sizes, so depending on what sort of performer you are, you've got your ATX weighted key, you've got your semi-weighted waterfall-type keyboard, and you've got your normal sort of synth keyboard as well. So it depends on really what the, the customer wants, but for a sort of touring, hiring, gigging instrument, especially if you're into sort of retro sound, it's ideal. It's got everything you need in one keyboard.
1: What about for the studio user? Is there something there for them?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, these sort of like sounds are very much in fashion at the moment. There's a big demand for it and a big demand for good quality sounds as well. So if you're going to get something like that, it's ideal because it will work in the studio as well as live. So you're killing two birds with one stone. And also, you know, when you go out live, you want to be using the same sounds you did on your record. So it makes sense to take that out as well.
1: How much does it cost
4: and is it shipping now? It's shipping now, yeah. The RRP UK is 2599 Inc. vat. That's for the 88 key version. Um, that's sort of like the top of the range one, but that's, that's a very popular one because people want the weighted keys. Um, but having said well, one thing that is really good about it as well, live wise, it's portable. You know, a lot of 88 weighted keyboards are heavy, especially when you put them in a flight case. This one is very manageable. You know, even in a flight case, carry it very easily. And they're very well built as well, they're metal, proper wooden end cheeks. You know, they're solid and they've got a very good uh,
5: QCing that they do in the factory, so they're reliable as well. Sound. Sound it's q a time again where we solve your studio conundrums if you want to have your question answered send an email to sound advice as one word at sound and again sound on sound is one word sound advice at sound our first question this month comes from james taylor in scunthorpe and he asks can you remove the headphone click track bleed from a vocal take what would you advise paul well, firstly,
2: I'd advise trying not to get it there in the first place because it is rather difficult to remove. So, using closed backed headphones rather than open backed headphones really helps. If you're working with a singer who only likes to have one headphone on and the other one off, then try and seal the one that's off against the side of the head, or better still, make up a little adapter cable that switches off that side
5: altogether. Yeah, that's the best way is a little adapter cable. Um, and also, change the nature of the click track. I mean, clicks inherently are quite high frequency um, information, which doesn't tend to get masked by the voice tends to bleed quite well so use a different kind of sound maybe a um a lower snare drum kind of sound or maybe even a a bass drum sound just to keep the rhythm going but actually you may not have to worry about it at all by the time you've got the rest of the track mixed in the click track may just disappear completely in amongst the rest of the rhythm track
2: that's perfectly true if the click track just happens to fall underneath the snare drum beat then it's going to be completely masked anyway it's only when you've got a a little bit of a cappella vocal that it really becomes an issue i think yeah If you've really got to try and remove it, first of all, decide how bad it is. Um, Is it going to be masked by the singing when it's actually happening and only audible between words, in which case you can gate it out, or you can go into a sequencer and physically mute the sections between words, which is something I've done in the past. If it's a really valuable old recording, uh, you know, some rock star who's recently died and you've got to uh, salvage it at all costs then probably something like Retouch would be the best way of doing it. Very tedious, but uh, it does allow you to eliminate things like that.
5: Yeah, uh, Retouch is, for those who don't know it, it's a product made by Cedar, uh, which is a spectral editor, essentially. But a lot of other software packages have a similar thing, um, Adobe Audition does. Uh, Sequoia has it. Quite a lot of systems have a, a spectral editor, which you could use for that kind of thing. Um, Mike Senior came up with a, with an idea which he suggests quite often for this kind of situation and that is to do another recording playing the same click track to the same performer who stood in the same place but who doesn't sing and that way all you're recording is just the bleed from the click track what you then do is flip the polarity of that upside down and mix it back in with the original track and if you get the levels about right you should cancel out most of that click track it'll never be perfect and if they move around a little bit you might get the odd bit of phasing but it should make things a bit better Sound. Sound. Sound.
1: Okay. next up, Joey B wants to know, will I encounter problems if I run speaker cables between my live room and control room? I want to keep my amp head within reach, but mic up the
5: cabinet in my live space. The total distance would be about 15 metres. Yeah, should be absolutely fine. You need to use some really chunky speaker cable, uh, and you need to make sure that nobody's ever going to get confused and plug something else into the output of your amplifier in the control room or in the live room. But, uh, yeah, it should be fine. Obviously, the chunkier the cable, the shorter the distance, the better it will be, but no problem at all. Mm.
2: If this is going to be a, a permanent thing, I'd suggest using 30-amp cooker cable, which is quite cheap and very low resistance, and run that from a, a special socket on the wall to another socket in the, uh, in the in the playing area, just so that you can't get it confused. Because, yeah. as Hugh said, if you accidentally plug the output from a Marshall stack into the input to your really expensive Neve preamp, you're going to have a very expensive repair to your expensive Neve preamp.
5: Absolutely. Um, something like um, the Neutrix speak connectors would be the obvious thing to use. Um, they're solid, secure, and you can't confuse them with anything else. Sound, sound, sound advice. Peter
2: Naylor says, can you explain what dither is in very simple terms? I've read a lot about it, but it
5: seems complicated to me. Now, who's your dither man? I'll dither over this one then. Um, in simple terms, mm, we'll try. It's quite a complicated subject, really. Um... Essentially, the, the, what you're trying to do with Dither is linearize the way that the recording digital recording process works. The, the classic way of explaining how digital recording works is that you sample the audio regularly and then you give a value for that sample by dividing it up against a, a scale and giving it a number. And obviously, the scale has a finite number of steps, so you end up with a finite number of numbers. And as the audio signal increases, you have to jump from one number to the next to the next. You have these discrete steps. That we don't want that in a linear system. What we want is a nice, smooth, flowing progression. And what dither does is it kind of blurs the edges in a way to give you that nice, smooth, linear progression. That's the simplest I can explain it, really. And it's particularly
2: valuable at uh, very low signal levels where the signal is represented by a few bits.
5: Yeah. Essentially what the dither noise does is it gives you a constant noise floor, which you wouldn't have without dither. You'd have a, if, if the signal died away without dither it gets more and more distorted more and more broken up and eventually just disappears and there's no noise at all it's completely silent with dither what you have is a fixed defined noise floor but the signal never gets distorted never gets broken up as it fades down it just disappears gracefully into noise floor just like an analog signal would except the noise floor is of course much lower oh absolutely yeah
1: so is this is this conventional noise that people can hear
5: yeah yeah some of the very early uh, digital equipment worked by actually deliberately mixing in just white noise with the original audio signal. And you can do a test, you can do a, um, using something like Adobe Edition, you can actually set up a system where you mix an analog signal and a noise source and dither it that way, and it works very well. It's a bit cumbersome, but it does work.
2: The other point to explain, I suppose, is where should you apply dither? And um, the the classic uh, mistake people make, I think, is using dither when they mix down a song and then using it yet again when they come to compile the album. Sometimes it's best to leave your mixes in 24-bit format and let the mastering engineer look after the dithering when everything's converted down to 16-bit.
5: Yeah, you need to apply dithering whenever you change the word length. So if you go from 24-bits to 16-bits, you need to re-dither at that point. Um, and every time you do a process that generates extra bits, like EQ would often generate more than 24 bits inside the process inside your your door, the dither will be done automatically when it reproduces a, a 24-bit output from that. Um, but yeah, leaving it to the last possible stage is the best advice. And there are different kinds of dither. I mean, I've talked about using white noise, which is a very simple form, um, but you can actually shape the spectrum of the dither to make it less um, audible to humans. Um, we're very sensitive to mid-range noise not very sensitive to high frequency and low frequency noise so if you shape the dither so there's more energy at the high and low end and less in the middle it will sound quieter even though if you measure it it'll be exactly the same
0: sound.
5: Sound. Sound advice.
1: if you have more questions on music recording topics you can visit our forum at soundonsound.com forward slash forum recently on the forum there's been a thread about recording methods in classical music hugh can you explain a bit about this
5: uh, yeah the the, the the guy who started the thread was trying to raise support for his argument that classical recordings should have or should be done with just a very simple stereo pair um, and nothing else, no editing um, no, no other kind of processing, no additional microphones uh, and his argument was that that was the best way of capturing the same kind of sound that you would hear if you were sat in the audience listening to uh, to an orchestra performing um, and needless to say it, it did stimulate quite a lot of response.
2: Yes, it's uh, it's an intriguing question, really, because when you think about it, that does seem to be the logical way to do the job, and indeed some companies have done this quite successfully in the past but what you don't get uh, are the visual cues that allow you to forgive certain imperfections in in the real life situation i mean for example whenever i've been to see an orchestra perform i've noticed that the localization of the instruments is actually very very vague because a lot of what you hear is reflected s- sound from the environment mm. and so sometimes you need to put those cues back in by using spot mics and just um, t- trying to bring the whole thing slightly more into focus just to make it believable at home otherwise it kind of sounds rather muddy sometimes
5: yeah i think that's that's right. When, when you're sat in a concert hall, you not only hear the orchestra live in front of you, the direct sound, but you hear all the reflections from the ceiling, the walls, uh, the floor in some cases. Um, so you've got a three-dimensional aspect to the sound that helps you work out what's going on. You've also got your eyes. You can f- visually focus on an instrument and using the, uh, the kind of the cocktail party effect almost, your brain can selectively let you tune in to particular instruments. So you have the ability to focus on different things. You don't have that when you're listening at home in front of a stereo. The other thing is, if, if you record with a binaural technique and listen on headphones, you do get a lot of that spatial information back, and that can work very well. But listening on speakers, again, you lose some of that additional information. So, you know, over the last 100 years or so, the the, uh, the technology and the, and the practice, the techniques have developed to start with a basic stereo pair, but then supplement it with additional mics to help lift the different parts of the orchestra or the different instrumentalists that might be a little bit weak and need a little bit more support. Mm. So I
2: suppose what we should be saying is that if you want to take the purist approach, then really you should be recording with something like a sound field microphone and playing the thing back on a surround system because a lot of the reflections come from behind you in a real concert hall.
5: They do, yeah, that's one way of doing it. And there are, as you say, companies that have taken exactly that approach and, uh, and doing it binaurally is the other way that works very well, but then you're restricted to listening on headphones. So it's always going to be a compromise. Sound, sound Advice Here's a question from the Sound and Acoustics Forum that I'll I'll bounce past you. Someone was going to build some uh, absorptive panels, similar to the kind of things we've done before in the Studio SOS sessions, and they wanted to know whether it was worthwhile drilling out the side of the woodwork in order to increase the absorption area. What do you think, Paul?
2: Yes, these will be the panels that uh, are essentially a wooden frame three or four inches deep, and we've got rock wool or foam or a combination of those things inside. And, of course, that's going to absorb at the front, but not at the edges. It would make some sense in acoustic terms to route out some big slots or holes in the the ends, but it's quite hard work. If you're really worried about it, I'd be more inclined to stick a block of 2-inch foam on either end of it and rely on that for absorption.
5: Yeah. Well, it would do the mid and high range. Frequency, certainly, wouldn't it?
2: Well, certainly, because these are not bass traps anyway. Yes. Your bass traps are entirely different things, uh, a lot more bulky and usually sit in corners. Rather like drummers, actually. Oh,
5: <laughs>
2: yeah, big and bulky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and sit <laughs> <sitting> <laughs> in corners.
0: <laughs> this is the Sound on Sound podcast.
1: SOS favourite Paul Farah, who incidentally wrote all the podcast jingles and stings, recently returned to the roost with a new column, Notes from the Deadline. Here he is to tell us all about it. <laughs>
0: Hi, I'm Paul Farrar, and in this month's edition of Notes from the Deadline, I'll be looking into the future. If you type futuristic into Google, it returns about 12.5 million hits. If you type retro into Google, it returns about 149 million hits. What does this tell us about society, and more importantly, what does it tell us about the technology we buy into to enable us to do our job as TV and media composers? Most technology these days sells into the retro market. It either looks retro, sounds retro, feels retro. And this backwards-thinking aesthetic extends to all levels of technology these days. Like most people, I've got a plug-in folder stuffed full of retro analog synths, and I love them all, but only insofar as the relationship works to my benefit. Have you ever used an actual mini-Moog? Have you ever picked one up? Have you seen how heavy they are and how little they stay in tune? So with a TV producer breathing down your neck, screaming about a deadline that's coming up... It's important that we have equipment that we can not only use well to our advantage, but that works quickly and efficiently, and allows us to recall music that we've done from sometimes maybe even years ago. This is one of the reasons I'm excited about this month's release of Spectrosonics Omnisphere. Now, as we all know, Eric Persing, the man behind Spectrosonics, is nothing short of a sound-designing deity. But one of the things I love most about Omnisphere is that it's an entirely optimistic product. Instead of saying, hey, here's a load of retro 70s sounds from an esoteric concept album, it looks into the future and says... Hey, here's something you've never heard before, which is exactly what you need and is going to sound absolutely perfect in your soundtrack to a new remake of an 80s quiz show. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. That's almost all we have time for
1: on this, the 10th episode of the SOS podcast. But before we go, we should tell you about the Performing Musician website, which is now live. Head to Performing Musician.com and you'll find 13 months of free content from our sister publication, Performing Musician, including technique articles, features on people like Alison Goldfratt, Dave Mattox, Nigel Kennedy, Mick Hughes, Amy Mann and more, as well as useful tech info provided by our very own Hugh Rob Johns and Paul White. You can also subscribe to Performing Musician magazine directly from the website, performing-musician.com. Join us next time on the SOS Podcast when we'll be answering more of your studio questions, bringing you the freshest gear news and previewing the latest edition of Sound on Sound magazine. See you
5: then.